in the New Testament, the letter of Ephesians. If you would turn there, we're returning to our study as we uh, work our way through this small book of Ephesians. And if you take your copy of God's Word to chapter 1 of Ephesians, uh, verse 3, I'm going to read the whole passage for you. We won't be covering all of this. We've started it. But to set the context, we will read this again. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek manuscripts. There's no punctuation and no capital letters. Or there, it depends on the manuscript. Some of them were all caps. Uh, so uh, this is one long sentence, and it's a challenge as we go through it. But it is full of great truth, great wealth. Ephesians 1 Beginning in verse 3, I'll read it out loud for you. If, you. if you are able, would you stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's word this morning? Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with his Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this mighty passage which declares the great wealth that we as believers in Jesus Christ possess we thank you for these positional truths, and Lord, may we capture them by faith. May we recognize that this is the true God who is speaking true things and that we are fully can fully trust you, dear God. Thank you for this. Thank you for this passage today, and may we be teachable today. May we give attention and engage the text that we are going to look at today, and thank you that you're with us. We pray for our children downstairs and in the nursery that they would grow in your grace and knowledge of you today also. And we do thank you for our country. We do thank you for the freedom we do enjoy here. And, Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, especially those who are in places of oppression and persecution, such as mainland China and Syria and Indonesia and many, many other places. And, Lord, we pray for them today that they'd have great joy in their salvation, that they would persevere in the midst of trouble, and, Lord, that they would know that you are with them and that you know this. And, Lord, keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And, Lord, may we have the large view of eternity as we look at this passage today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, if you are a World Series fan, uh, 
have just watched the World Series probably, many games. I remember when I was in uh, grade school that they played the World Series during the day and we would have TV televisions in the classroom and we would stop class and watch the World Series. Can you imagine that? That was a great thing. That's probably why I flunked grammar and syntax and math, all because of the World Series. That's what it was. But uh, I understand. I've never even attempted to buy tickets to the World Series, but I understand it's one of the most coveted sports tickets uh, in the world, actually, uh, and uh, at least in the United States. And often, just standing room only tickets can go for hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars just to go stand and watch a game at the World Series. That's why I was reading about this guy, a Los Angeles Dodgers fan named Jordan Benedict. He was online on one of those ticket outlets, StubHub. He was looking for tickets, tickets just on the offhand that he might be able to find some. And there were a pair of tickets for $9 each on StubHub. He bought them right away. He got them right away. He got his tickets. And he, he said uh, something. It was like, what? This is amazing. So I had to buy them. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, he told the reporter later. <laughs> uh, as expected, the ticket agency, StubHub, reached out to him to let him know that the pricing was indeed a mistake, and they requested a return of the tickets, which in his integrity, he did return them. However, uh, Jordan Benedict uh, wasn't uh, out completely. This company found him a pair of seats elsewhere and still honored the $9 price. Uh, he said, I was like, I won. This is incredible. And he said the energy in the stadium was amazing. So uh, he got those tickets for virtually free to go to the World Series. You know, sometimes it can feel like uh, most of the most exciting opportunities in life are uh, reserved for only those who are wealthy enough to afford those experiences, whether it's in money or uh, careers or talents or whatever it is, it seems like some of the most exciting things are withheld from what we would call average people. But when an opportunity comes along and uh, for very cheap or free, if you will, uh, we rarely question it. We want to take advantage of those things if it's at all possible. You know, uh, this passage we read today talks about uh, the provision of eternity for people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, as in all generations, the battle for the gospel is ongoing. There are many false gospels out there and many masquerading as what we would call evangelical gospels, and yet uh, our eternity is in the hands of Almighty God. Uh, technically, the glories of heaven, when you think of everlasting life with God himself, should be reserved for those who have earned them. In fact, many evangelical churches teach that you have to earn your salvation one way or another. Of course, no one but Jesus Christ can fit that description. He's the one who lived perfectly. He's the one who made the payment for our debt on the cross of Calvary. He's the one who is resurrected, gaining victory over sin and death. And he invites us into glory by his grace. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Ephesians can be divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 talks about our position in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 talk about the Christian's practice, position and practice, or chapters 1 through 3 is our wealth that we have in Christ, and chapters 4 through 6 
is our walk in Christ, how we live out, how we live out what we have been given. And so chapters 1 through 3 are kind of doctrinal in nature, and chapters 4 through 6 are what we would call the application of the doctrine. That's how you would divide the book of Ephesians. Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing from being imprisoned in Rome to the church at Ephesus, and then by extension probably to the other churches in the area. It was probably a encyclical era era, letter, which they would pass on from church to church to read. And uh, the, the first three chapters tell us what we have, and the last three tell us what to do with what we have. It's always nice that the Christian faith, it's always a great indicator of the Christian faith. It's not just this theoretical pie in the sky, by and by faith, but there are practical ramifications. There are how to live out our lives in this world. We have riches in Christ, and we've just read these great riches about salvation. In this uh, passage that I read for you, there is past, present, and future uh, timelines that run through this. And last uh, two weeks ago, actually, we looked at the blessing, the past blessing of being chosen. It's called election in verses 4 through 6. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, a very clear declaration. Uh, Verse 3 really is the summary of this whole sentence, and it talks about uh, we, have, he has, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And, of course, this letter is addressed to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a resounding declaration of what we have as believers in Christ. And then verses 5 through 8, which we will look at a couple of those verses today, is a present tense. And it's the blessing of adoption, the blessing of adoption. And we will look at that. And then the future is found in verses 9 and 10, the blessing of unification. He's going to start building the case that the church is this new entity, this new culture, this new society that the world has never seen before. It began in Acts chapter 2 in the first century and it is ongoing. We are part of the story of the church, the church age, if you will. And he talks about this issue of unification, which we'll see towards the end of chapter 2. We don't fully appreciate it, but there was this gigantic Jewish-Gentile divide in the early church. And there was not only ethnically and racially, but religiously, this gigantic divide. And uh, there were some Jewish people who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And then these new churches were planted full of Gentile believers. And so uh, today, unless you are of Jewish ethnicity, you are a Gentile, no matter what your race or background is. And so the Apostle Paul is going to start laying the groundwork for this uh, massive new thing called the church and it is amazing as we're going to see as we go through redemption or excuse me as we go through uh, the book of Ephesians and in verses we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 if you look at uh, this long sentence it can kind of be divided into three sections there is uh, verses excuse me um, excuse me 3 through 12 14 In verses 3 through 6, as we saw two weeks ago, it's about God the Father. He is the subject. And then in verses 7 through 12, God the Son is the subject. And then in verses 13 and 14, God the Holy Spirit is the subject. So you see this declaration of a triune Godhead, the Trinity. Uh, Evangelicals and uh, Christians are Trinitarian in their theology. Uh, three persons in one entity. This is God himself. The Bible clearly declares it. And here, 
uh, we see that uh, all three are referred to. And two weeks ago, we looked at uh, God the Son, God the Father, and His role in choosing us for election and blessing us with every spiritual blessing. And now in verses 7 through 12, God the Son, and what is his role, and what do we have? Look again at verses 7 and 8, where we see that in Christ we have redemption and forgiveness of our sin. Redemption and forgiveness of our sin. By the way, an interesting exercise, and I've done it in my copy of Scripture, is I've underlined every occurrence of in Christ with red ink. Because in the book of Ephesians, over 35 times there's reference in in those words or similar wording or phraseology that uh, we are in Christ. We are in the beloved. And uh, this is a fantastic theological term. And as you go through Ephesians, more than any other book in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about the believer being in Christ. We are so vitally united with him. It's like an organic union because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he tells us here in verses 7 and 8 that we have redemption and forgiveness. Look at verse 7 again. He freely bestowed his grace upon us in the beloved, the end of verse 6. And then verse 7, in him. In other words, referring back to the beloved, which is Jesus Christ. In beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption and forgiveness. Redemption uh, means basically a release from our state of slavery. This is redemption or release from the slavery of sin, and thus is the work of Christ, and it delivers believers from the slavery to sin. Uh, you know, before you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were a slave to sin. Even though you might have been a very good person, did good things in your life, you were under the condemnation and the wrath of God because all men are born as sinners. Some call it total depravity from Scripture that we are unable to save ourselves. And that word is used to denote our release from a state of slavery. Uh, In Paul's use of this word, the word redemption, we have redemption, uh, is the fact that it was very knowledgeable to his audience. Because in the Roman Empire, in the then known world of that day and age, in Paul's day, there were over 60 million slaves of various uh, ranks and classes. And there was always a slave market probably in every major city. And uh, so over 60 million human beings were being offered for sale to anybody who could pay the price. Jesus came and paid the price for us. We were in the slave market, if you will. And he restored us to usefulness. Anything in the slave market is of no use at all until it is restored to usefulness. And until a slave is purchased, it is no good to anybody. And that's the picture that we have here. And the Apostle Paul, with this word, he uses for redemption. We are redeemed, and it tells us how he did that. It's by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ thought so much of this. God, in his ultimate eternal plan, has sent his own son to die on the cross for you and for me. And this redemption cost the blood of the beloved, his crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. On my computer, and if you have a computer, and if you use a Windows operating system, I don't know about Mac apples, you know, I really don't know about what they use. But uh, if you have a Windows system, you have a little item on there, which is called System Restore. System Restore. And one of the features, and I've used it, it, how does it work? Well, if you suffer a crash of your computer, lose what you think you've lost some of your stuff, 
and you don't know how to recover your last two weeks of financial information or your school papers or uh, history reports or your favorite games, all you have to do is select System Restore and specify which dates you want to go back to, and uh, it will restore it at that point. It will reset problem solved, and you start over again. And uh, somehow the things you messed up are put back into their configurations from an earlier day. Uh, wouldn't that be great for our lives? You know, there's times I wish I could go back and do a system restore back to just before I was 18 and made a lot of stupid decisions, you know. Come on, I want to make better decisions. But maybe uh, things crashed for you somewhere along your life. But uh, the fact is there is a system restore. Uh, God doesn't erase all the consequences of our actions, but he promises far better. He promises forgiveness to work for our highest good, even though in the midst of all of that, it may have been very bad. He makes all things new. We have a future and a hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. So redemption, we are a redeemed people. It's nothing we have done. And then forgiveness for our trespasses, forgiveness of sins, which is the immediate result of Jesus Christ working our lives and releasing us from sin's hold over us. We were saved from the very penalty of sin, and we are being saved from the power of sin. And eventually, when we go to heaven, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And here we're talking about this initial justification, being declared righteous, being redeemed and forgiven. And uh, God could not treat sin lightly. You know, we always call it our little mistakes or something, but God does not. He required the sacrifice of blood. We see that in the book of Hebrews also. It means the redemption is a sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ for our behalf, and it completely satisfied God's justice. God is perfect, and he cannot be in the very presence of sin. And so Jesus Christ, as God the Son, took our place on the cross of Calvary, this perfect Lamb of God who was sacrificed for us, this substitutionary death of Christ. And it was accomplished according to the riches of God's grace. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. We do not merit the grace of God. Our trespasses, our sins were forgiven. The word uh, trespasses in the Greek means it can roughly be translated our missteps or our stumblings, which are tragic in life. And I know every one of us would, could go, if we could go back and correct some stumblings and missteps in our life, these hurtful blunderings which we think that were going to get us along at the time, but they didn't fulfill us. They were wrong. They were devastating. They were deadening. And we can end up bitter and disillusioned about life itself. But these stumblings have been forgiven. The Greek word for forgiveness means dismiss, dismissed. Uh, they've been set aside. They're no longer taken into account. They are ignored because Jesus Christ paid it all. Remember Jesus Christ, his current ministry in heaven, and he is our uh, advocate, and he is our essentially our, our lawyer and one who goes before the, the throne of God when Satan accuses us and stands there and said, my blood paid for it all for the believer in Christ. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In other words, it's a poetic uh, mechanism to say that our sins have been removed for, in God's view, it's a positional standing. We have been 
redeemed and forgiven. Grace, remember, to one definition coming from an old Southern Baptist pastor, which I appreciate, is the unlimited, unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. The unlimited, unmerited favor given to the utterly undeserving. So, first of all, Jesus Christ, uh, we have redemption and forgiveness in him. Secondly, in verse 8b through 10, in Christ we have knowledge of his will. Isn't that incredible that we have knowledge of what God wills in life. Look at verse 8b again with me. Excuse me. It says, uh, He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purchased in him. In the New Testament, it speaks about a mystery. It's not like an Agatha Christie mystery on PBS on Sunday nights. But a mystery is a previously unrevealed truth about God. The church is called a mystery early on until it was revealed in Acts chapter 2 and continues through the New Testament. And uh, it was previously an unrevealed truth that God has kept a mystery to his people until a certain time. But we have the knowledge of his will. J.B. Phillips' translation, which is old now, but still I find it fascinating to read this translation. It helps Uh, get a different viewpoint of Scripture. But J.B. Phillips translates this passage this way. For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it is this. He purposes in his sovereign will that all human history shall be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. God gives us wisdom in the second part of verse 8. It's objective insight into the nature, the true nature of God's revelation. Remember, God reveals himself through nature, Romans chapter 1. We can see his creation and know that there's a God. That's called general revelation. But then there is specific revelation in the word of God, God's love letter to his people, that we can find the details of who and what God is. So general revelation, specific revelation, and Jesus Christ was special revelation. God the Son came to earth, and did the will of the Father. And so in Christ, we have knowledge of his will. He gives us wisdom in verse 8b. Also understanding, it's a subjective apprehension of it. So believers are able to grasp something of the divine purpose of the ages and to see its relevance in the present time. I always have to remind myself to keep the long view that this life is not all there is, that this day is not all there is. Typically, we live in the moment, in the day, in our current task, in our current demands on our lives without reminding ourselves of the bigger picture. And that is a challenge, but he has given us wisdom and understanding. He's made known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will, this previously hidden truth revealed by God's revelation. It's God's good pleasure to purpose in Christ to bring all things in heaven and earth under his headship in the consummation of time. It's all about Jesus Christ. When you look at him, when you underline in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ, you're going to see that this whole passage is about what God has done through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see next week sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have reached fulfillment in verse 10 when the times have reached their fulfillment where that kind of a, To me, the grammar of this passage is difficult. Paul was a little complicated in his sentence structure as he wrote this sentence. But he talks about unto the dispensation of the fullness of times. The dispensation is an arrangement or an administration. 
And he's talking here about the coming millennial kingdom, that kingdom that's prophesied a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth from Jerusalem that is still yet future. That's the complete consummation of what he's talking about here. Uh, When all things, both spiritual and material, will be under the rule of Christ. And he talks about the summation of all things. It condenses into a summary. That is a rare word in the New Testament. The only other place it occurs is Romans 13.9. And there's a number of views about this, but I think it reminds us that everything will add up under Christ. Okay, Christ is taking care of the math here. And it's all going to be uh, a summation in Christ. And then in verses 11 and 12, thirdly, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Again, let me read you J.B. Phillips' translation of these two verses. And here is the staggering thing, that in all which will one day belong to him, we have been promised a share since we were long ago destined for this by the one who achieves his purpose by his sovereign will, so that we, as the first to put our confidence in Christ, may bring praise to his glory. He obtained an inheritance, and we are made an heritage. In verses 11 through 12, look at verse 11 with me uh, as we go there. Also, we, in him, at the end of verse 10, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The word predestined there is different from the English word predestined we find over in verse 4. I think it's verse 4. Uh, yeah. And, uh, or verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. It's a different word that's used there. Uh, but basically it means that marked out beforehand, it's chosen by lot, essentially. And God's people are God's possession. I think that's one thing that really needs to be impressed upon you and I, especially me is the fact that I am not a free agent out here, but I am God's possession. I am God's property, if you will, and and because he paid it all for me, and I am his possession. And God's people depend upon God's will here in verses 11 and 12. How did we become God's people or possession? It was by his will, his determined will. Uh, You know, in Scripture, we see God's will, and some theologians uh, narrow it down three different uh, ways. Uh, I tend to just do two ways, and that is God's determined will, which is he's established the universe and its orbits, and there is the law of gravity, and nothing's going to change it. God determined that in his design. That's his determined will. And then there's his desired will. He desires all men to come to know Christ as Savior. It doesn't mean that they all will because it's not his determined will, but it is his desired will in his love for each and every human being. And so there's a couple of things to keep in mind there. He destined us to be his sons according to the purpose of his will. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And we've become God's heritage according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. This whole passage is full of God's will or his good pleasure or his purpose or his plan or program. And all these things have been established and expressed in this passage. This is a decisive factor in every human being's life. When we think about in Christ, when you go through this passage, now notice as those first 14 verses, how much is your responsibility Can you write a list of what you're supposed to do for eternal life? It isn't there, is it? 
It's because it's all about God, all about what he has done. We are saved by grace through faith. And he is the one who provides everlasting life. He is the one who provides us with redemption, forgiveness, and inheritance. He is the one who is the focal point of this passage. I have, over the years, in uh, witnessing about my faith, uh, especially among, uh, recently among uh, very militant atheists, uh, and I've read it different places, and I've personally heard it, that they would claim that Christianity is for weak people. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Maybe that's been a response to somebody in your family or workplace or school. That's, ah, that's for weak people. I was reading about a firefighter uh, who was a Christian, and one of his fellow firefighters told him that very thing, that uh, Christianity is for weak people. And I thought about that, and you know what? Uh, about 50 feet from my house, over by Gordon's house, is a fire hydrant. You know, And uh, you know, I drive by it every day. I've never looked at that fire hydrant and felt ashamed. You know, I never have. Uh, I drive once in a while. I'll drive by the firehouse down over here, and I never think uh, uh, this way. If this community didn't have so many weak people, we would never need firehouses. And when I pay my property taxes, and I think a portion of that goes to the fire department or when we give, you know, you do some giving when they do a funds drive, I never get angry thinking, if I could just handle the fires on my own, I wouldn't have to write out this check or send this money in. You know, imagine a person whose house is on fire. In fact, just down the block from where we live, there was a fire last uh, early, late summer. Uh, the fire is raging, raging out of control. We walked down and watched it, and soon the fire trucks pulled up, sirens blaring. And, uh, you know, those people didn't rush out of their house in a rage and says, how dare you come to my house and think that I can't handle this fire by myself? Uh, firefighters are for weak people. They're not for me. Uh, what would you think of somebody like that? Uh, you would think they were demented, wouldn't you? Yeah, kind of insane. Uh, we know that fire departments are for weak, weak people because power exists that we simply cannot handle on our own, can we? Uh, and that's the power of fire. When it gets out of control, uh, no individual can handle that very well. Actually, we admire the firefighters because they're people who have committed themselves to take on the power of fire at personal expense, sometimes great personal expense, you know, we as Christians are weak in the same sense that a community is weak for having a fire department. Uh, Christians are people who have acknowledged that a power exists that we can't confront and live, and that is the power of the holiness of God. You know, and that is a fundamental question. When you stand before a righteous, holy God, who's going to intercede for you? When he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? A perfect place the holiness of God. But this is not a cause for shame because there was the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who dealt with that power at his own personal expense on the cross of Calvary. When someone is rescued from the flames, they're not thinking about their weaknesses. They're overjoyed that someone would risk it all to save them. As believers in Jesus Christ, our joy is based in the fact that Jesus Christ paid it all to rescue us from the flames of damnation. And I pray and I trust that you have trusted in him today for your eternal well-being.
For God so loved you that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. What a wonderful consequence. And the condition is simply belief in Jesus Christ. Not believe and be baptized, not believe and go to church, not believe and make him Lord, not believe in all this other stuff that people throw at us, but it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter of Ephesians. And Lord, we do praise you and thank you for uh, your using the Apostle Paul, that he had such a passion and a heart to see the gospel go up through the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have superintended, protected your word down through the centuries, and that in our hands in this country, we can hold authentic, authoritative copies of your word and that they are trustworthy, and that we know you are a mighty God, and you do not lie because you do not sin. And thank you for the truth of your word today, and we pray that you would impact and impress our hearts and our lives in the days ahead as you give them to us, for it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen.